Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck sticks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I'm broadcasting from a hotel in Atlanta, Georgia. I came down here Friday. It's been a harrowing few days, and I will tell you what's going on um, because I, uh, you're all part of it. You're part of the story. You're part of my life. Um, but before I, I kind of get into the thick of it, uh, I'd like to promote my tour. Is that okay? The 2020 tour dates that are now on sale uh, are these. Thursday, January 30th in Cleveland, Ohio at the Agora Theater. Friday, January 31st, Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Fountain Street Church. Saturday, February 1st, Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Turner Hall Ballroom. Friday, February 14th, Orlando, Florida at Hard Rock Live. Saturday, February 15th, Tampa, Florida at the Straz Center. Thursday, February 20th, Portland, Maine State Theater. Thursday, February 21st, Providence, Rhode Island, Columbus Theater. Friday, February 22nd, New Haven, Connecticut at College Street Music Hall. And Sunday, February 23rd, Huntington, New York at the Paramount. You can go to WTFPod.com slash tour for links to all the venues. That's going to be a freezing tour. That's going to be exciting for me because... I have a lot of winter clothes that I'm never able to wear because I don't ski really anymore and I don't live in a cold place. It's a stretch to have to wear a fucking sweater in Los Angeles. So now I'm going to have to pack big and uh, get out the gear, get out the boots, the warm jacket, layer up. I'm going to layer up. That's what I'm going to do. It'll be fun, except for Tampa and Orlando. I'm assuming they're not going to be freezing. Oddly, a bit chilly down here in uh, Atlanta, but I don't know the weather generally. I've, uh, As I said, I've been here since Friday. Today on the show, I talked to uh, Jay Roach, whose uh, new movie, Bombshell, is playing uh, in a limited release. It opens this Friday, December 20th. It's about Fox News. It's about Roger Ailes. I remember talking to... Um, to John Lithgow when he was working on it. And uh, we had kind of a funny exchange about that, about uh, the depth of the monstrosity. He did a great job with it. Uh, but uh, there's no question, and we can make no exceptions, uh, Roger Ailes was a fucking demonic fuck who ruined the world. Did not bring good things. Did not bring good things. And he's the reason why we have a fairly well-oiled and functioning authoritarian state 
that is uh, really taken over half the country. And it's uh, and they're excited about it. They're happy about their dictator. Uh, their tribalism is 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 furious. And they would like uh, I would I really think they'd like uh, Democrats dead or non-existent, not to mention other types of people. But uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Right now, there's about a 47 percent of the country is living in a functioning authoritarian state with much thanks to Roger Ailes. Now, we'll see if it it spreads. We don't know yet, and we don't know what that spreading will look like. It's not just going to be a, people going like, I guess it's okay. That'll be part of it. But I assume like any other authoritarian virus, the other part will be bloody. We'll see, right? Don't want to freak anybody out. Sorry, maybe I'm not in the right headspace. So I'll talk to Jay about that, about uh, his his life and his other movies. You know, he has been sort of doing more politically bent movies, but he also did uh, the Meet the Parents movies. And, you know, we'll talk about life, man. That's that's what I do here. So I imagine some of you know, because um, I kind of put it out there on social media a bit, that uh, I, I um, that LaFonda, my cat, who I've been talking about for the last week or two uh, is uh, no longer with us. I, I, I put, uh, I put my cat down. I put my buddy down. I had to let go of my friend of, uh, you know, 15 plus years. I, I believe she was, um, my estimate around 15 and a half years old. I picked her up out of the garbage, uh, in a story. I wouldn't say I picked her up, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I found her and her siblings uh, eating out of the garbage bins in Astoria, Queens, in, um, I believe, I think it was probably around August of 2004. I was working at Air America. I remember it was the eve of or shortly before the Republican National Convention that we had to cover. And I, I know many of you know this story, but I think it's important on some level in talking about these particular cats in my life. They've obviously played a big part of my life. But I don't know that some of you know the, the full depth of that in that the cats that I rescued from those from the alley behind my apartment in Astoria, Queens, really, I believe, helped define my um, my, my radio personality and, and my style of radio and provided me with an outlet or with a focus uh, that really changed the nature of my voice on this type of mic and uh, and got me going. It was really two specific events that uh, shifted, you know, how I approached uh, the radio mic and uh, and what I offered of myself on that mic, and, which was the beginning of learning how to do it. Those two events were the the trapping of four kittens behind my uh, my apartment building in Astoria. And it's so funny. I've heard from so many people uh, from my past and people who know me. Uh, around LaFonda's death. And, and one of them was Jody Lennon, who lived in the building, and I believe still lives in the building with me, and she was there the night that I decided to trap these cats. And as some of you know, I just really wanted to help them out. I wanted some friends. I thought kittens would be fun. I had no idea that uh, once they're eating on their own and they're, and they're sort of... Uh, doing that thing you know solo acts they were all together and around but they were out there in the wild eating on their own which means they were feral they were actively and essentially uh, wild animals 
And LaFonda, who was the runt of that litter and a very small, kind of beautiful Russian grayish tuxedo cat, uh, somehow in her scramble wound up stuck to a glue trap and was flopping around a wild fucking animal flopping around on my kitchen floor in a frenzy stuck to a fucking glue trap that I had to remove from her. And she was always to this day or to the day before I, I put her down. Uh, well, actually, it kind of had gone away, but she was a, a, a very reactive, defensive, you know, quick to pop you kind of tough cat. A little fist of feline fury was that LaFonda, and and I, and she was tweaked mentally. They were all a little tweaked because they were feral, but I believe that Fonda was a little extra tweaked because that was her Vietnam, folks. That was her point of trauma. That was when it went down. That was what reconfigured her brain chemistry was getting stuck on that glue trap and reluctantly you know, fighting every bit of the way, me having to take her off that and bloodying myself. I can't tell you the number of times that that cat bloodied the fuck out of me, either trying to put her into a cage or trying to help her out biting, scratching. I wore leather gloves at the beginning. But it was during that period where I had those four cats in my house. Uh, I named them. One was Hissy, one was Meanie, one was Monkey, and LaFonda's name I think came later. But they were just wild animals. I would go to sleep and I, I would hear them out there and I didn't know what they were doing. And I'd wake up and my entire, uh, my entire apartment was destroyed. And I didn't know what to do. So I started talking about them on the radio. You know, I want to talk about the issues. I want to talk about being here. But I think it's important to let my listeners know that because of your coercion and your bullying tactics, I have taken four feral kittens into my apartment in Queens. Do you understand? I know this may not seem important. It may not seem the issues, but this is the world I'm living in. I was living in a world of order and in a world of discipline where I would go to sleep and wake up and come to work. No more. Four feral kittens that I don't even know what to do with, Riley. I think that you should hold on to them. I think you should feed them um, solid white tuna. And that they'll like me? And they'll like you. They will love you. Remember now, they're feral. They have uh, seen nothing but abuse since the day they opened their eyes. Yeah. So now you've taken them in. They're going to be a little skittish at first. I don't think they they were abused. They were living out there in the wilderness behind my uh, apartment with their mother. And I swear to God, this one orange cat, literally, I let it out of the box. I trapped them. I, I made a box. I cut a hole in it. I put food in it. I trapped four of them. There's apparently one more kitten out there. I've got to get the mother into a, a cage and get her neutered. That's the ultimate project. But here, so I let this orange one out, literally climbs up, I had a window open about five inches, climbs up into the screen, it's locked itself in between the screen and the window with its claws in the screen wedged in there. And I, I realized something about me, Mark Riley. I wanted to help the cats, but after three days, I'm realizing this was all about me being loved because none of them, they, they're behind the oven, they're under the couch, they will not love me. I, there is no kitty celebration of love going on. So what does that mean? You're going to put them back out in the street? I can't do that. I've now started making phone calls to figure out what to do with them. And did you know there's a whole underground network of 50-year-old women with money who do nothing but rescue cats? Really? And, I, and three of them are calling me. <laughs> I should, I, you know, that's rude. Are they proposing marriage? I, they're doing the right thing. How do you know they're over fifty? I'm again making an assumption, okay? But I, I appreciate their help, and I don't know what I'm going to do with the cat. So let's move on to bigger things. It is amazing that Brendan McDonald found that clip and buried somewhere in his computer or files or a hard drive. But that, what you just heard, that was me and my co-host Mark Riley from the show Morning Sedition on Air America. We were at uh, Madison Square Garden for day one of the Republican National Convention, which we were covering. And I, I, it's, 
you know, it's really something. I think I had trapped the cats maybe a few days before because that was, um, I think, August 30th, uh, 2004. And I think I trapped them on the 27th because Brendan remembers me calling him because he was out with friends and telling him that I did this. And I and from that day on, you know, I continued to to give updates on the cats like every day. And it was me sharing that narrative about those cats that really started to engage me in the medium of radio. It was that and actually, uh, you know, burning a pot of lentils that I described with a certain weird passion uh, that really started me off in knowing that I was doing the right thing by by being on this type of platform, on this type of microphone, in this type of medium. It was thanks to those cats, for sure, for sure, no doubt. So eventually I tried to take Meanie across the street to the bodega, but I think he just re-entered the ecosystem. He was a very mean and crazy cat, very wild. Uh, Hissy was a black tuxedo long hair that actually I found a home for. I don't know if that cat is still alive. And I took Monkey and LaFonda, uh, back to L.A. with me. And Monkey even made a trip back to New York with me once when I was back there again for work for a long period of time. But LaFonda, the one trip to to L.A. was enough. And I write a big piece about that in Attempting Normal. I, I've had a lot of memories with this cat. These cats at my old house were once indoor-outdoor cats. Fonda did a lot of traveling, used to hang out a few doors down, dodged coyotes somehow, uh, always came when I called them. Uh, there was just a lot, of, uh, a lot of people have come in and out of my life. A lot of women I've been with in the, in the past or relationships I've had have known this cat, have had relationships with this cat. Uh, when I told Jody, when Jody heard um, uh, that, I, that I had to put her down, uh, she said, so sorry to hear about LaFonda. What a life you gave that kitty. And I said, thanks, Jody. You were there when I trapped her with the shoeboxes. And she said, totally. You, you extended her life by at least 14.5 years. And she said, extra hugs for monkey and me. But everybody, you, you know, I, there was a, I had a roommate at the house that was very close to LaFonda. My friend Stosh, who some of you might remember from the beginning of the podcast, who used to live at the house with me and help me out during the early years. She was very close to LaFonda, and I told her, and I hadn't talked to her in, in years, and, and we sort of reconnected, and we're going to have coffee, but it was very difficult. I'd never done it before, and I, and I was really dead set on not missing it in, in a weird way. Uh, I remember I had a cat named Butch that was a gift to me by my uh, second wife, Mishnah, um, you know, who had a heart problem, a congenital heart problem. And, and she died when I was in New York and I missed that. I missed burying her, you know, Mishna buried her with, uh, Ernie, the handyman out in back of the old house. And as some of you know, Boomer disappeared, uh, many years ago. What a great, great cat Boomer was. Deaf black cat got eaten by the coyotes and, um, scaredy cat, uh, you know, the other stray was hit by a car out in front of my house. But uh, I just didn't, I was, you know, Monkey and LaFonda are, are my, my old friends. You know, it's been over 15 years. And as you know, you know, Fonda was, um, got sick, you know, about a month or so ago. She just, her health took a sharp turn. She lost a lot of weight and I took her to the vet and the vet, uh, you know, told me that she had a, bladder infection but her kidney numbers were horrible they were all in the red and she was sort of on her way and I said well what do we do he said well you know she's not 
I don't think it's time, but you know, this is not good. And you can give her subcutaneous fluids and, you know, do what you can to make her comfortable, but it's not good. And, and but you know, when you hear that as, as an owner of a cat, you, you're like, well, maybe she could just level off. I mean, I always knew she probably had bad kidneys. She drank an awful lot of water. And, you, you know, that had been going on for a while. I noticed that she had been losing a little weight, but, but he, he was like, just, you know, do what you can. You, you know, sometimes you can get another year out of them. You don't know. But the doc said, you know, look, if she starts sewing up or if she starts getting diarrhea, that, then that's the time, you know. And, and then I was like, I still wasn't clear, you know, because, I, I, you know, some people say, well, as long as she can, you know, accept love or give love or, you know, if she's conscious, you know, if she doesn't seem to be in pain, you know, why not keep her around? I thought, well, okay, she's getting a little loopy. She's old and got this kidney sickness, but maybe this is just who she is now. She lost most of her strength, most of her will. You know, but you hold on, you know, because she was still sleeping with me and, you know, we could touch her still. And uh, and she still seemed to like it, but she was very weak and losing energy. And and then like people, a couple of people said, you'll know, you'll know when it's time because she'll tell you. And I didn't really know what that meant. And and sure enough, like Thursday, you know, she just... Um, She just didn't stop, really stopped eating, you know, and, uh, and and threw up a little bit. And But she was acting b- bizarre, you know. She was drinking an awful lot of water. Like, she couldn't get enough water. And then she tried to, you know, she started to try to get in the toilet. And she it was acting weird. And she tried to get in the bathtub. And she shit in the shower. And, and she was just crying and howling all the time. And, and she was doing weird sh- shit, like trying. It was almost like, you know, when you're sick and you're just trying to make yourself feel better. You're looking for something that'll make you feel better. It felt like that just howling all the time and she wouldn't eat and she wouldn't drink. And it was, you know, and, and, and I guess that's that what I, what I thought she was telling me. I thought she was telling me, you know, I was going to have the euthanasia at home stuff. And, but I'm like, fuck it. I'm just, I'm taking her to the vet because I want to know what's up. You know, she's howling all the time. She's in pain. She's not eating. She's not drinking. She threw up and, you know, but I knew what was going on. Her kidneys were gone, you know, and, and, but I didn't want to accept it. And I kind of knew when I took her to the vet that I was not going to leave with her, you know. And, and But I wanted him to see her. Yeah, I got a good vet over there at Gateway, this new guy over there, Dr. Modesto and Dr. Ram too. But Modesto, I, I, he just, I, you know, he was the one that diagnosed her and I, I was glad he was there. And I put her in the cage. She didn't fight at all. She was just limp, you know, and so fragile and so light. There was nothing to her, you, you know. And, I, and I, I was sort of like I was just waking out of this haze of trying to save her and really knowing in my heart that there, there was no saving her you know so i brought her in and he weighed her and she lost weight she was like five pounds and um and i said should we do a kidney test maybe she's got the uti again or the bladder infection he's like i don't know and he looked in her eyes and they were sunken he said his, she had anemia her gums were white and i told him what was going on and i said i was doing the the uh the subcutaneous three days a week and and he's like how can she be this dehydrated if you're giving her that much and he conferred with the other doctors and he just said i think it's time and i'm like seriously really but i kind of knew you know i knew i knew that it was and i said okay okay and he goes well you you know do you need a few minutes i'm like okay you know and lynn came and we were there and like you you know and i I took some time i talked to the cat and i apologized to the cat and, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, this is the right thing. You know, I know, you know, some of you are like, it's a fucking cat. It's a fucking cat. But, you know, this cat and I, you know, it's whatever, man. It's just it was 
you know, had a lot of things with it, a lot of memories with this cat. It was, you know, and, and, and I knew it was the right thing to do. And he came back in. I said, he said, you don't have to, you want us to, you want to be here? Do you want, and I'm like, yes, yes, this is what I'm doing. You know, I want to be here. I want to, like, I don't want her to feel abandoned or f- more freaked out than she already is. And he said, okay, we'll put a catheter on her and we'll come back in. So they did that and they came back in and I was holding her, you know, like she was laying on the table and they had the catheter in and the doc, it took him a long time to get the medicine because they have one guy in the back handing out medicine, I guess. And he's got these two syringes and I was just holding my cat, you know, and Lynn was kind of holding me, but I, I was holding the cat and, um, you know, and I was just saying, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I'm sorry. I love you, you know, and, and I was concerned that, you know, the, the tears wouldn't come, you know, and, and they, uh, they definitely did. And he put the, um, the first one is a tranquilizer and it just shut her down, you know, just right really very quickly. And I go, she, she's out. Why are her eyes open? Is she, she's just sleeping. What's happening? You know, and I was kind of panicking and crying and telling the cat it's okay. And then I, and, and I go, we'll do the other one. Let's just do it. You know, let's just do it. And he did it and it was very quick and very painless. And he just, you know, put this stethoscope, stethoscope on her and said, she's gone. And I just was kind of crying and, you know, petting the cat and she was gone. She was gone. And, uh, you know, that was that. So we hung out with her for a few minutes and I, you know, I told them I wanted the ashes and, you know, and they took her away. And that was that, you know, and, uh, and I was, you know, I was the guy, you know, I was the crying man leaving the, the vet's office, you know, with an empty carrier, you know, that was me. And I, I tell you, you know, some people feel guilty and, or that they waited too long. I, I just feel like it was the right thing to do at the right time, at the right moment. And I was glad I could do it for her. And uh, I was glad to be there for it. It was, it was terrible and beautiful. You know, it was, it was really, you know, it really fucked, it, it fucked me up. But I, I just, uh, you know, she was at peace. You know, you know, I was at peace. Because at some point, you know, both of your quality of life, you know, the cats and yours are deteriorating when you're desperately trying to keep them alive. And she didn't suffer too much. Whatever the discomfort was, it was the beginning of it. And the doc thinks that her kidneys just went. And that was the end of it. So, you know, R.I.P. LaFonda. And I was happy to be there. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, and she had a good life. So that's that. And I thank all you for being supportive and for all the outreach and for the recommendations of how to handle this and, you know, how to do a home uh, euthanasia and what to do and, you know, different approaches to the kidney. Thanks for all of your input. So Jay Roach, good guy. He's made some funny movies. But uh, this bombshell movie is something. uh, It really is. And, And some amazing acting and it's an amazing story. And there's a scene in there where I think, you know, with uh, Margot Robbie and John Lithgow, if you really wonder how abuse of power affects somebody, affects a woman in a situation where there's not even sexual contact, there's a scene in this movie that 
will will hammer that point into you, and it's it's really something else. And the movie's good. And this is me talking to Jay Roach back in the uh, house. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. So Jay, you wrote you wrote a bike over here. How long you how long you ridden a bike? I've been riding motorcycles since I was a kid. Really? Uh, I don't know if you your dad I, let you. He did, but only yeah. on the dirt. Uh, I lived in, I grew up in Albuquerque. I know. I mean, I, I, I did. I ran into you, and you tell me that. Yeah. When, okay. And I remember I was listening to you and Mike Judge. Oh yeah. Talk about your youth, and I was like, wait a second. Yeah. That, it's that's my youth. Like I was amazed how many similarities. Just the. How much are you older than me? How old are you? I'm 62. So I'm 56. Yeah. You were there. You were went to Highland, right? I went to Highland. Graduated in '81. Yeah, I graduated in 75 from El Dorado. Yeah. <laughs> so you remember, man. Oh, the whole thing. Just the yeah. cruising around, nowhere to go. McDonald's. Doing, doing donuts out in the dirt. And, and, <laughs> and I, my my thing was the motorcycle. I just had a dirt bike, and I just was it, it was in my garage being taken apart more than it was being ridden. Oh, but, yeah. Uh, but I, I would get out on that bike, and my dad wouldn't let me run in the street, so... I got a street bike finally when I went away to college, and, and I haven't stopped. I did stop when I had kids, and I kind of parked it for quite a while. And then, out of um, fear or what? Out of my wife's, uh, <laughs> the look on my wife's face every time I yeah. would come back. She's like, she wanted you. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what, what are you doing? You, yeah. well, you're too, way too old, and you're, you know, you should be responsible. You have a family now. And and that's coming from an old rocker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, what's your wife's name again? Susanna Hoffs from yeah. the Bangles. The Bangles. Yeah. yeah. They didn't get as fucked up as the Go Go's, though, did they? Uh, I don't think so. She's pretty. Uh, she's she's got some stories. Oh yeah, she's got yeah. Some good stories. Yeah. yeah, but I don't. I don't did know. Did she write "Walk Like an Egyptian"? She did not. Uh, she wrote "Eternal Flame." Oh yeah. Uh, but she, and Prince wrote "Manic Monday," and those are uh, sort of their big, their big hits. hits. Yeah. I like that the song on the first album, "Live." Yeah, yeah. That's I love that with song. the Petersons mostly doing the singing. There. Yeah. yeah, Vicky and Debbie. Yeah. I like the lick. Yeah, yeah, it's a good lick in yeah. there, right? Yeah, Am I you, would, you would correctly? catch that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there, Ricky's a good guitar player. So, all right, so Albuquerque though, in the seventies, the General Store. Did you go to the General Store over Is by that, university? Yeah, the head by, shop? down by the campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the posters, the frontier, and the frontier, and all, man. Yeah, that's I used to hang out there all the time. My friend was uh, later in while he was in college would, would 
perform at Civic Light Opera all the time, Pope Joy Hall, you know. Yeah, do a So we would go. He was a he was a song and dance man. You know, oh, really? The, he now he's a lawyer there. You do musicals uh, and stuff. Who was your friend? He's a lawyer in Albuquerque. Yeah, Chris Pierce. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I might have you know been gone by the time some of the stuff you guys went through, but I just sounded like it hadn't changed that much. When did you get you out of there? Seventy five. You were out by seventy five. Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you go? I went to Stanford. I got. I, I had lived, I was born and raised in Albuquerque, lived there my wow, whole life, really? never left, you know, until really? I got on a train and Where'd went you, to What Stanford. part of town did you grow up in Albuquerque? I grew up uh, up by Lomas and Candelaria. What'd your dad do? What were you doing? My dad worked for the Defense Department. Um, he worked at Sandia, you know. Um, Sandia like Labs. A lot of people do at Sandia yeah. Labs, which was affiliated with... Los Alamos, Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore, and he he was a bomb builder. You know, he no built, shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's like an engineer, or like a mechanical engineer. Guy. He was like involved, and in, he would go underground in Vegas in the you know Nevada test site, install a device that would read the force of the blasts, yeah. and and then go back in after the blast and come and then come back. So to, was he up in Los Alamos a lot? No, he it was mostly just Sandia and the Nevada test site. But he was, you know, radiated a bunch of times. We, we had a whole, there's a whole story about what my dad went through to, uh, you know, to build hydrogen bombs. Right. Wait, like the original ones? No, like in late 50s through the 60s and all. I think, I don't remember, he sort of retired. Um, Wasn't there like, it was, did he go into the mountain? Wasn't there a hollowed out mountain? He, like- he, in That hollowed out mountain is... Uh, on the property of Sandia, you know, it's right. on the Federal Reserve there, and it's in Albuquerque, it's right? A big Outside. bunker full of nuclear stuff. You know, you fly over it's it; it's real. It's real, and there's like three fences that you know. My friends used to hunt around that mountain, and once yeah. when I was a kid, we were sitting at a um, one of those diners down along the freeway, and looked up, and a plane crashed into that mountain, and everyone was afraid for a little while, like the whole place was just going to turn into a nuclear really? mushroom oh yeah yeah and some a, a fair number of soldiers died i think it was like a scene 130 or something that crashed and we saw the plane hit it was always a it was that mountain was such a mysterious weird uh, kind of oh, monument to, to nuclear activity but like this is all sort of like mythic yeah but your old man told you about it eventually well he could talk a lot about some of it once it was declassified, once the Cold War was over, which he takes credit for ending. You oh, know? does he? <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, with Ronald Reagan, you know, he, he and Reagan uh, pretty much, uh, what does he say, we, we brought down the Russian yeah. bear or something. Were they, were they buddies? Yeah, not really. He was, my dad was, um, my dad worked his way up from, really from nothing. He didn't go to college. Yeah. And he, drew, he just drew and they hired him as a draftsman and huh. he taught himself to... To draw mechanical drawings, and they, and then he just kept. It. He actually turned himself into a full-fledged mechanical engineer without a college degree, which is pretty impressive. That's crazy. What did your yeah. mom do? She was a, uh, she was a housewife. She had, you know, we were four little kids by the time she was very you know, like twenty-four, twenty-five. She was uh, yeah. had a handful, and then uh, after I left, she became the administrative assistant at the high school where I went, El Dorado High School. El Dorado High. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know anything about El Dorado. <laughs> It was it was a brand new school when Kinda I went there. Kind of remember where it is. It was brand new. You yeah. know, Highland had been around forever, and Highland was always our big uh, rival. rival. The yeah, Hornets, because they Eldorado always had a good football team. We had terrible basketball teams, but really good football teams. And and Highland was always there. Yeah. When we after a basketball game with Highland one time, yeah. my my best friend Chris and I actually were standing around outside and and everyone it used to be so many fights after games. That's sure. all people knew what to do, and we got just yeah. we got literally just knocked over and kicked for a while wasn't we weren't injured but 
it was just I was looking back like my there's a lot of stuff that went on that uh, you know was vaguely traumatic which you probably didn't even we didn't probably even uh, recognize I didn't get involved with sports much but driving around I mean you got your driver's license when you were 15 14 8 14, months, eight months for yeah, the learner's yeah. permit that's when I got mine yeah and I mean it's like what are you going to do and then half <laughs> of it, you know most of the people have guns out there you know and they're just riding around dicking off oh, drinking sure. getting people to buy you booze Outside of a fucking liquor store, you got the same fake ID we got. That thing where you yeah you blow up, up a big picture and the stand ID, behind yeah. it, and somebody uh, takes, takes a, a picture Polaroid and I, cuts it out. Literally, I was listening to you guys talk about your experiences. I was like, is that just is that just like it's just been going on there for decades? Well, they and didn't. Decades? They, well, they. I guess it's like they didn't make the they didn't secure the the. How do you like that coffee? It's all right. That's excellent. Oh, Thank good. you. They didn't secure the identification. Like they added all kinds of different things on it with the light. But back in the old days, you could. Re- it was pretty easy to fake them. I, was your school good? Did you go? Do you feel? Because I was actually. I was thinking about this the other day. That my public school was yeah. like a good, you know, testament to the quality of public schools. The teachers were good, and I, I you know, I, I feel like I lucked out for because I talked to a lot of people in some of the other schools there. In fact, one of my friends is a principal at element as an elementary school there now, and. Uh, people don't see it as such a great school system in New Mexico, but I've, I felt lucky. I must have gotten. I think if you're lucky, right if you're if you lock in with teachers, if they, yeah, I don't know. Like there was a couple of teachers that were pretty horrible. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of drunks. My electronics teacher, he was kind of a drunky guy, and my English teacher was kind of a little off. But then there was another English teacher that I really connected with, and the history teacher yeah. I connected with, and then when I didn't, it's really a crapshoot. But they built this amazing state of the art art department over at uh, Highland mm-hmm. in my last year. Mm-hmm. And they had this you know, full high-tech dark room. And oh, it was like, yeah, it yeah. Was, I just was, it was crazy. So I was really kind of in the dark room the last year or so. But uh, That's what happened to me at college. It's funny you say that too. I, I was pre-law studying economics and I found out there was a dark room in the basement of my dorm senior year. Uh-huh. And that was it. That was the end of pre-law. <laughs> I just like started shooting pictures, decided I was going to be a camera person. and then, Well, that's interesting. So, yeah. okay, so wait, are you the youngest of your siblings? I'm the oldest. Oh, you are? Yeah. Where's everybody else? Anyone still in Albuquerque? Uh, my dad's still there. My, He's still around? And my mom's around too, but she's in, uh, they're both in assisted living, but different parts of, my mom's in Southern Colorado. and um, So they weren't married? They were married. They've stayed married all this time, but it just, the health reasons and oh. the doctors and huh. stuff ended up they just were in separate places uh, and they are now and uh, my brother is That's uh, difficult are they both cognizant yeah yeah and they're they're actually supportive of each other from uh-huh. afar they kind of have a funny long distance I've you never know, heard correspondence. that before really, I know it is it's it's interesting um, my mom has uh, sort of she's sort of has a, a kind of specific type of immune system thing and uh-huh. she just gets better care up there and, and, and your dad didn't want to leave Albuquerque he didn't want to leave he has this great house uh, uh-huh. looking up at the Sandias uh-huh. you know uh, up off of Tramway and he just do they FaceTime they FaceTime a lot. They FaceTime. They FaceTime accidentally a lot. I'll get buzzed, you know. They that FaceTime is <laughs> is a really uh, great thing for grandparents. And, and your and your your siblings. None of ones in Albuquerque. Uh, none of them. The other one is uh, one. My next bro- brother down is uh, a pack train guide yeah. in uh, Wyoming. Has huh. always been like a wrangler of some sort up there. Uh, he's a cowboy, yeah. and my my other brother's a truck driver. And uh, really, yeah. My we grew up in a kind of Texas rancher. Uh, household. My dad was in the suburbs, but had grown up in you know, out in the very rural Texas, you know, and still thought of himself as a cowboy. Huh. Um, and so all my 
so or at least my two brothers became very very outdoorsy your dad your, your brother rides rides horses yeah and yeah and, and well, outside of yellowstone he leads you know uh-huh. I mean, now he's leading national geographic scientists in to study wolves or something he's got a really cool life uh, you know and like he's a tracker or something he's like he tracks them and huh. he knows uh you know I, w- I once went mountain biking with him back in there he does that too tours and he like has to carry a 44 Magnum. Where's that documentary, spray. Jay? <laughs> yeah. That's Where's what I the talk about on. your brother? Yeah. Uh, he's great. He's amazing, actually. And then the other one's a truck driver. Truck driver. And then there's another one. My sister is, uh, you know, uh, she just moved to Southern Colorado to be closer to my mom, but she's been a paralegal and uh. real estate lady. She's done a bunch of different things. It's crazy. And you're a film director. Yeah. I was the, I was always the weird kid uh, f- because everyone, uh, my family were just, you know, just, working people and uh as i said my dad we, we were sort of raised in a lower middle class yeah. environment and uh i just had a i don't know i got i was i was sort of driven i was a little type a you know and running around your motorcycle on my motorcycle motorcycle to get away from it all but uh i was also you know very uh focused student a lot of What'd student you... government stuff oh really of, oh yeah in, yeah was, in high school in high school yeah uh-huh. and um and sport i was trying to do everything i mean it's been kind of uh, uh, it's a bit of a problem it's just been you know so scattered and interested and curious about everything so it's actually been, but you must uh, have done well in school to get into stanford i i did okay but when i got to stanford i realized i think they just let me in because no one else applied from new mexico because they <laughs> they really actually have a, a, a they a like quota? a map that seems yeah it uh-huh. seems like they represent all 50 states uh-huh. and so i think it was a regional affirmative action really because <laughs> I, I didn't have great I had really good grades and good, uh, uh, you know, sort of student resume or whatever. But I my my SAT scores were not not, not great, s- not strong. And, so when you and got I out- got there and everybody was like perfect eight hundreds and whatever, and I was like, oh man, I I'm out of my league here, and I had to hustle. That's a good survive. school, man. I mean, it's like it seemed, and so it's the mid seventies, so things are pretty groovy yeah. still. Very groovy, uh, you know, post-sexual liberation, yeah. pre, pre-AIDS. So it was that, there was a that crazy- window, <laughs> That was the pocket. <laughs> that was the pocket. <laughs> post-sexual revolutions, pre-AIDS pocket, good times. There was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, exploring uh, yeah. going on. Drugs. For me, as a kid, from coming from Albuquerque, just into a big, you know, a, a sort of sophisticated coastal place like that, yeah. uh, was uh, I was very out of- my element for a long time there and i was always sort of trying to just catch up drug guy uh i didn't i smoked a fair amount of marijuana yeah <laughs> yeah but uh i didn't I, I wasn't so much into much else i'd be you know i would drink beer with my friends there right. but i was never i was never um i i just i didn't love the you know the, i didn't join a frat or anything like that and That's i wasn't good. Uh, i wasn't I didn't that get doesn't end well for stuff. anybody it seems like most of the people you talk to though are in frats you Almost always, ninety nine percent of the time, you go like, "No, I can see that." You, you know, <laughs> you know, but I, I could have, I was tempted just because I love to play basketball and you know, right. the, the sports part. But of what stopped sports. you, Jay? I had living with dudes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I liked. I lived in a co-ed dorm. They didn't let you think about it in freshman year, and so uh, living in with just cool women. It was. Uh, it was also an interesting time for the women's liberation movement. You know, mm. and there was a. I had, I had a lot of very strong, cool women who were. You know, asking a lot of questions and pu- pushing things. And mm-hmm. and I I uh, growing up the way I grew up in a pretty male. You know, be 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 a strong man yeah. and all that stuff, you know, from the Texas rancher mentality, yeah. which is, you know, there's a certain nobility in it, but I, 
I know I you know I started kind of drifting politically away from some of my dad's mm-hmm. ideas, and uh, I'm actually working now on a, a Kent State uh, thing to try to do um, a limited series about that week. You know, uh, really. Yeah, um, with Tina Fey's company, actually, because her husband, Jeff Richmond, uh, lived in Kent at the time. But I remember that 1970, 13 years old. At the protests? Yeah. But was he... At the time of the shootings in 1970. But his family lived there? He was a kid, kid, yeah. yeah. He goes to school later there, too, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, But he definitely was there when he was 10 years old. I talked to uh, Mark Mothersbaugh about it. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I just met his wife. Night before last, yeah. I said you got to talk to Mark. Yeah, and um, he was like there, there. He was there, there. And so Joe, was Joe Walsh. Walsh. Yeah, yeah. I talked yeah. to Joe Walsh about yeah. it too. We've talked to Joe too, and it's a really compelling story. There's so much more to it than you just know from well, the song were, or the photograph. Oh or, yeah, you know, no, um, like you don't get anything like that. The yeah. whole town was in, like they called in the fucking tanks. Absolutely, uh, you know, and it was a four day process that led up to the Monday when they. When they shot the kids. And, well, that uh, sounds very compelling. You're going to, oh, yeah. like, what do you think, in six episodes? Five, six episodes. You know what made me think? We were trying to do it as a feature, and yeah. then I saw Chernobyl, and I was like, you could tell this story like a meltdown of a system, you know, uh, and, and try to analyze all the different forces that uh, end up with kids carrying rifles with live ammunition who are avoiding the war by being in the National Guard, shooting other kids who are, you know, protesting the war in just an just an inexplicable series of fuck ups you know that led to this this uh, clash you know and then what happens after they shoot them and this is where the really compelling story is they're they're now the whole campus is gone nuts and yeah. finds out about it and there there's like suddenly went from like 3 or 400 protesters yeah. to thousands of them and they the national guard is reloading right. to go back in and clear yeah. them out and the story of this one professor who avoided it could have as the semi cellist is working on it with us, you said, you know, the thing about this is not that it happened, but that it could have, there could have been a lot more people killed afterwards is really the powerful story. Of well, I think the like the, the whole town got involved. Absolutely. It started in the, in the town. It started on Friday night after Nixon said they were going into Cambodia. You know, uh, the, there was a riot in the, in the town and there was a town gown tension all the yeah. time anyway. So, right. So anyway it's a, a really compelling story and uh but it but the reason i brought it up is that that's when uh i remember my dad saying i feel like the students might have deserved that you know and that was a that was 60% of america thought and they did polls that blamed the students for what happened huh. and most of it was the students that were indicted first not the guard and uh until the more and more photo evidence came out and then there was a, a big thing I sounds like you're pretty in, deep into the process uh, we've interviewed a ton of people and and it's going to be like oh is it going to be a documentary type of situation? no no more like a docudrama more like chernobyl did you see that no i didn't watch oh, it yet. so good be careful with the costumes <laughs> oh yeah good point it's the 70s it's closer to, to not have them look Tricky! <laughs> wow. <laughs> having, having, I, I could show you pictures that would be uh, from nineteen seventy. I, I know. Be, I mean, they look so cool, but it's uh, for some reason it's so some hard. Are, some of them do, you know. Uh, it's but so hard to to get it right, you know, uh, when you're fictionalizing it. Absolutely. So, how do you get? You know, you started Stanford in pre-law, and like, what? I mean, you know, you direct big movies. I mean, it, and I, it seemed like you kind of come out of nowhere in a way. I'm, I was late. I was late. To that what are you been game. doing, man? So you, you you're <laughs> in college, but you said that you started doing photography out of nowhere. Yeah, I started doing photography and uh, uh, was working there in a right at the beginning of Silicon Valley, really during the um, 
you know, during the, the this he graduated late 70, in 79. 79. Yeah, and worked there for two years running a, an instructional television thing for the School of Engineering at Stanford that was beaming to, out to Hewlett Packard. Wait, after you graduate? Yeah, after I graduated. But I'm where the, did you have experience working in television? Just these, I worked my way through school. I had to have all these work study jobs. And, uh, I, and one of them, one was, of them was running these little classrooms where you'd have three cameras in a booth and joysticks and a little yeah. switcher. And just kind of capture and record the professor's class, but beam it th- out to these remote uh, Silicon Valley uh, companies, where you, so you could get a master's degree or a PhD in electrical engineering while you're being employed at oh, oh, Hewlett Packard so that or Ampex. Or was what? that a service offered by the school, or was it something school. that the, the Silicon Valley School wired of Engineering at? set it up ah. to sort of, sort of hub out? So that's how a huge part of how Silicon Valley. Uh, got educated, networked itself, yeah, yeah, and 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 got educated. Um, it was a big part of it, actually. So I worked there, and they let me shoot some documentaries, and I applied to USC Film School. You shot some documentaries in co- uh, when little you- tiny short films, you know, and um, for, that, so this is after college for two years, for two years in Palo Alto, you know, living sure. in Palo Alto, and uh, but working on campus. Um, and uh, not really sure what I was going to do, but I got to. I was I had so many work study jobs like I was cleaning sound heads in the documentary program. I yeah. met I met some cool documentary uh camera yeah. people and thought I I'm going to apply to film school. So I applied to USC and um got in there and then helped them run their they had a similar kind of engineering school network and so I worked my way through USC doing more of that which is a weird setting way up to these get uh these um cor- classrooms and doing these uh engineering courses huh you know it's uh, so weird because there's no internet this sounds like why would anyone do that but that back then it was sort <laughs> was of like a, a an amazing thing i would imagine yeah it was like a one-way facetime actually because you could see the professor but you could then there was two-way audio so you could punch push a button and get right into the classroom with a question so oh, you'd I always hear the off-campus people call wild me. and this is your beginning well, it was a way, it was a job, you know, and and it but it had a, and it got, a they, camera component to it. But and, you got you through USC though. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. Like, and then I then I did I took you know started getting the the uh, directing bug at USC. I went there to be a camera person, but the, it's a narrative narrative storytelling yeah. thing because of George Lucas and John Milius and all yeah. those people who'd been there. Yeah, and so I got the directing bug, directed a, a couple short films. It's a three-year program. It was an interesting five years of my life because I couldn't I couldn't afford to keep going. But I so I'd stop out, go back, stop out, and then I didn't really get to direct for ten more years after that. What the fuck were you doing, Jay? I was shooting documentaries actually, and being a writing assistant and being an where uh, at all around town and teaching. I taught I taught cinematography at SC for seven years where? part-time at cinema at at, at, S, at USC. You taught cinematography? They hired me right out of school to teach, which was just, How did that happen? Were you that good? I was a TA for a long time, and I took over for a professor who, you know, needed some help. And I, you know, I liked, I liked, shooting and and showing other people how to shoot, you know. And it was, it would, that was a great prep for directing because I would ask the students to set up a a little scenario and build a a couple walls of sets and light them and shoot them and and just edit in camera every Uh every Wednesday night, you know, they would come into the little studio there. And uh, and it actually helped me think more about how to shoot and edit by talking about it to kids. And um, And what were some of your first jobs in show business? 
I got. I was a writing assistant for a lot of that time Where? through a, uh, a company called Trilogy Entertainment. That mm-hmm. um, so they made Blown Away and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and kind of uh-huh. mainstream uh-huh. actiony stuff. And they started letting me write scenes. I wrote the story for Blown Away, the Bomb Squad thing with Jeff Bridges, and uh, I wrote a a pilot for a sci-fi show that was terrible ultimately, sadly, but it had some promise at the time uh, called uh-huh. Space Rangers. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I started just getting permission to keep writing more and more and I actually turned it myself into a writer. And then uh, I did some weird art films, including one film about the psychology of evil with Adolf Hitler as the <laughs> the weird stylized... I was watching Jojo Rabbit the other yeah. night. It's such a good film. It is good. And uh, I was thinking back on this time, and I, I was doing a ton of research on, you know, the rise of Nazism, weirdly. And uh, and I around this time, I met Mike Myers, and he is a history nut. And we started talking about that, and then he sent me... We also started talking about Monty Python. He yeah. sends me that script, and that's when I finally got to start um, Austin Powers. And that's when I finally got to start directing. What movies. were these docs, though? So I, I shot uh, documentaries that were... I, I would shoot, like, industrial documentaries, uh-huh. and even actually some for the Air Force. I shot, like, footage of F-16s and A-10s and... I would just get any job I could get. I was just a working person. I was not, I, I was always just, I lived in one room in a seven room house with six other people. You know, I was, I was like a grad student for t- 15 years basically uh-huh. <laughs> until yeah. I met Mike and, uh, and got to do Austin Powers. So I had a weird, very weird eclectic So what was that trend. like? I mean, but like you just, you just, so you had all this stuff you did and, but you know, when you meet with Mike, how'd you meet Mike? We started talking about we are he had a guitar that my it was a signature Rickenbacker Susanna Hoff's guitar and <laughs> he walked up to Susanna got to know her she and uh, his wife at the time uh, Robin Roseanne got to be friends and Mike and I just started talking about history and and you were just this guy that, just like, this guy literally just who this does guy. these weird little jobs kind yeah. of in the show business no promise whatsoever it's a pretty amazing story because he. Um, he, we talked so much about, and you're these already things. married. Uh, yeah, had been just married for a couple years, um, and so uh, she loved you, even though you didn't look like you were going anywhere. Oh, I was. We met on a blind date. I was. Uh, <laughs> I had a old VW bus that would catch on fire about every third time. Wow, I drove it. And man! I a, and I, she just, she had said, I'm just. I she dated a lot of actors and you know musicians and uh somehow she said to the guy who was actually working with me on space rangers do you know anybody and he'd worked with her and so he he put us together and i i literally thought it was a prank like i just was she already she a big was, star oh, she was huge she the Bengals had already had you know all their that biggest one records yeah two was, records. This, this was in 91 they were biggest in the mid 80s you know yeah um, so um yeah so we we uh she, she sort of helped get me together with Mike Myers and um he yeah got me to write up some notes about the the, the script and after that said we helped me look for directors and I was combing through other people's directing reels uh-huh. and I found a guy I liked and said oh you should go with this guy this is after Wayne's World uh Axe Murder Wayne's World 2 it was after all those films yeah. and he was sort of looking for someone that he could sort of just collaborate a little more closely right. with that instead of just someone who would just kind of direct them and 
push him around. But you didn't have any, you couldn't really show him any real directing no, experience. Nothing. In fact, he, when I when he took me into New Line Cinema, and, you know, Suzanne Todd, the producers that I had known in yeah. since, since film school also were very involved in this. And they, he and, and my wife and the Todd sisters had put me up for the job without telling me and said, we want, Michael thinks this guy would do it based on this 12-page yeah. notes document I wrote that had some a lot of jokes in it. And, yeah. And uh, so I sat with the studio people because I, I, said, I said, here's the guy. And he said, well, I put you up for it. I said, what are you talking about? I don't have any background. And that's what the studio guy said. He said, who are you? We're not going to just hire Mike's buddy. You're not funny. You don't have any, you haven't directed anything. And I said, Mr. Shea, Mr. Bob Shea at the yeah. time, I said, I totally get that. But will you take a look at this storyboard sequence? And I had worked out this whole thing with the fembots um, yeah. that hadn't been in the original script, you yeah. know, and... And it was really funny. It was, right. I must say, it was a great thing. And I got a storyboard artist that, and I, I was acting it all out. Yeah. And Mike I, kind of helped me perform it with him and they hired me to do it. And they actually didn't right away. Mike had to say, they finally said, we're not going to hire this guy. And, you, and he said, I tell you what, don't call me anymore unless you hire this guy. And they were sending him like, Big time directors. This is Mike. This is Mike. He and went to bat for you. He went to bat for me, and it took a few more weeks. And he called me. He had, he had just jumped into the swimming pool with his dogs. You could hear with all his clothes on. His wife told me the story, and he called me, and I could hear this crazy racket in the background, dark splashing and barking. And, yeah. And he said, "You got the job. You got the job." And he it was you know uh, and he, so him plus the Todd sisters. I have to credit them too because they really helped too. But Mike freaking fought like a crazy person and at the time with not the most power in the world you know the those the first film the first wayne's world was huge yeah and the, the, but he was he was an actor and you know but just fighting like crazy for me and uh he and then he became naked. his guy there for a yeah. while yeah You're the austin powers guy yeah i did uh but, and he's like notoriously a control freak and i you know i've talked to him but he's not easy right he was he's cares a lot about what he's doing and and i think but, that gets misunderstood sometimes as being difficult because he just he yeah, just fights I, like crazy yeah, for i didn't get the sense of, i don't know him to be difficult but i mean you know you must have learned a lot on, on oh. some level and, because uh, he wants it his way right he i feel like i learned comedy uh working with him i didn't really i honestly didn't know that much about how to I didn't know comedians. I uh-huh. had only written i'd written screenplays by then and all serious all either right. sci-fi or right um, but I, we big sci-fi I, freak. Not not a freak, but I was you know I read Dune and all the Heinlein stuff yeah. and all that you know I I, I but I wrote in science fiction. Huh. Um, I got to do some sci-fi adaptions for like Bruce Willis and uh, and so but just mean? there just what, wasn't you a, adapt for Bruce Willis. Uh, uh, I did nothing that got made. A, a, a weird book called. Uh, ambient uh-huh. and uh, i adapted it for bruce it was about a post-apocalyptic world manhattan that's been flooded and you can only um get to the different skyscrapers which are now like castles through bridges across the tops of them and uh-huh. bruce plays a played a would, would have played a bodyguard so whenever you went down into the no man's land he would be the guy who would escort the Sure. The uh, the warlords or the right. or the pharmaceutical you need that guy control. Yeah, yeah and, and <laughs> it was a great concept. But I'm, but so when you say you did it, you adapted it for him, you were hired by his company yeah. through uh, again the Suzanne and Jennifer Todd, who I'd known in film school, were producers for him, and um, I, I, I I I'm pretty I like telling stories, so I would go in and do this tap yeah. dance of pitching something, and I could often convince people I'm pretty 
you know, gung-ho about those kinds of stories when it's something I really loved. And he, he said, okay, I'll try it. And he really liked the script, but it never, it was, it was expensive. And, and uh, I never really, I don't think I nailed the third act. Uh-huh. You know, so I never got to make it. But, um, but that's how, you know, that's the kind of stuff I had been doing right before I met Mike. And no, no comedy <laughs> in it whatsoever. And so getting, I really learned Mike is kind of an encyclopedia of comedy. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever talked to him about how he, he's got a very worked out sense of what's funny, why it's funny. From, from working with Lauren yeah. uh, a lot, from working with uh, Del Close, from, from right. um, really studying comedy. He's a, he's a genuinely serious student of comedy. I, yeah. I wish he would either like do a master class or write a book about it because he, I don't think I've ever spoken to anybody who articulates... Um, just the considerations, the the the, the things that make something funny. And usually, you can kill kill comedy by sure. talking about it too much. But uh, you know, some some things like um, the the power of of clear setup. You know, yeah. making sure uh, everything is not fuzzed or the camera's not moving at the wrong time and and it's all you know just the power of uh, of, of making sure that by the time the the comedy is to be delivered and yeah that's too mechanical way to right. say it, but that there's no there's nothing that could get in its way and that right. sounds so simplistic but it was you'd be surprised how many especially in previews you'd find oh the reason this didn't work is because you know that Sign that was yeah, right. got, somehow got in the way, muffled, and also so just the power of distracted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Things can kill jokes, and then yeah, and the, the music can kill jokes or whatever. It could be anything. Right. And just it's and really was, like the way to avoid messing. And I'm sure it's partly just because he would know what was funny. He's like, don't don't have something uh, as part of this that could get could sort of. Uh, and those and, the, and those movies are sequences of jokes, really. There they are, but they are also the other thing he taught me was that. Uh, you know, and this is from Lauren, is just that, you know, talk up to people. Don't talk, try not to talk down. Make make it clear, but don't make it look like you're talking. And that, uh, talking down, and he really cares about story. He cares about the predicaments. The, yeah. Uh, because a lot of times those things are the engines for comedy, um, you know, too, is what what is the... What is at stake? Why does this matter to this guy? Why Why is the fact that he's completely not, in Austin Powers' case, the difference between how he sees himself and what his capabilities really are is so vast. Did you have to watch the James Bond movies? I did, but I, I actually was a force for him, I, I, or at least my influence, I think, was more to try to not parody as much as go for the style of pop art movies right. and old Italian heist movies. Right. And, uh, um, we, the camp, the tenth victim, you know, yeah. yeah, not not the, yeah to, to not, but to go for that style could be funny because yeah. it's I guess that is camp, you know, to yeah. push it a little bit, that, right? That that can be sure, funny. and um, he's you know he just there's just he just knows that stuff, and I but then I got to go off and do other comedies, you know, Meet the Parents. Well, I mean, and, but you did three of those. Now, how did Meet the Parents come up? How did that happen? I did, was it Austin Powers? Did that help get you that job? I saw that it actually Austin Powers helped me not get that job at first because uh, I found that script after Austin Powers, but uh, Universal Studios and uh, producer then uh, Nancy Tenenbaum, who had it, said we don't want it to be silly. Like from their minds, Austin was just pure silliness. We want this uh-huh. to be real. So I lost Meet the Parents and went and did Mystery Alaska. 
I had it. I had it. For what was a while. that movie about? That's I didn't that see hockey that. movie with Russell Crowe and Burt oh. Reynolds and mm. uh, um, big cast. It was a great cast: uh, Lolita Davidovich and Hank Azaria and Ron Eldard and all this really uh, cool people. Colmini. I was an amazing guy. It's actually probably my most personal film because it's about uh, a kind of. Um, small town sports, the way sports yeah. can hold small towns together. When right. I would go around the state of New Mexico and play, you know, play, I was, I was a terrible, I was like the bench warmer on, in my football team, but I, I would, we would go to those towns and, uh, and experience the life of the town wrapped around a football game. So very much like a Friday lights, lights, yeah. lights thing. Right. And then I saw that when I started doing the research for the hockey thing, that's how in Canada, you know, the, the soul of the town is, can be often the hockey rink. Right. So that's the essence of it is a, a, a challenge to that. Anyway, it's a crazy, you know, cast, amazing experience with Russell Crowe and Burt Reynolds. I think it's, I thought it was pretty funny. It got bumped because beloved Oprah Winfrey's movie was, uh, wanted the date we had. And by getting bumped, we were previewing really well. But In we terms of a release date? Yeah. And so people- um, Got lost? It got lost. No and came out a year later and nobody saw it. <laughs> so I didn't see that was it. A good, it was a good experience to have a, a nice experience. I don't understand how you guys fucking shoulder that shit. Were you, and obviously that's a pretty high level example of it where you put all this time in yeah. and you, know, you make this amazing thing and because of really forces out of your control, but nonetheless executive decisions, just yeah. uh, uh, you know, they they sideline you. Yeah, and literally it, uh, it disappears. Yeah, the it, movie and someone would have much. to go out of their way, maybe because we just talked about it in that cast, <laughs> to try to find Mystery Alaska on, on iTunes, which is yeah. probably there. Oh yeah, it's there. Yeah, you know, and it's hockey players find it. That's <laughs> that's because there's not many great. But there's so many projects like that, yeah. and people that put years <laughs> into things. Yeah, it's happened to me a couple times where you were surprised something you work on a long time just kind of, but but I've, how do you, you handle know, that shit? In that case, I just got busy on uh, the next Austin Powers. I went right into the the. But doesn't the anyone sequel. go? What the fuck happened, Jay? Oh yeah, they're they're <laughs> coming at me, and I'm coming at the studios. But you you know at that time I had zero power, and uh, you I, got I Russell Crowe calling you. What uh, happened, man? Russell Crowe was probably calling the studio more than he could. Yeah, he, yeah. he knew he had more clout than right. I did at that sure. point. Um, that was after uh, Ellie Confidential, but before Gladiator. But he still was already pretty influential. How was Burt Reynolds? Nice guy. He was a great guy, but he was in a really interesting place where he had uh, gotten the Golden Globe for Boogie Nights, right? And then it had come out that he had fired his reps because he'd been embarrassed by Boogie Nights, uh-huh. and he didn't win the Oscar. And the night before he was flown down to the Oscars and he was kind of figuring out that he wasn't going to win. I think Robin Williams won that year for uh-huh. uh, Goodwill Hunting. Uh-huh. We were shooting on the out on the ice at like 30 below and he was, oh, he got so, he got very cranky and he yelled at the, at the line producer and the, then and like a pretty, pretty rough yeah. <laughs> bit of... Uh, verbal abuse and then he felt so bad about it and it was all because he was I think he just you know he'd had he was he, this was a comeback for him this yeah. is a huge deal Boogie Nights right and and he didn't because, realize he, it. he didn't realize it yeah he's on our set and he he you know wants to be let go and I'm shooting uh, you know p- huge scene in a locker room with Russell Crowe and all these all these hockey players and it's the coaching scene. It's yeah. the scene where he's be supposed to Russell uh, Bird's supposed to be the he's the judge who then 
gives Russell the strength to to you know keep going. It's a really a kind of funny tropey moment, but yeah. he gets so bent out of shape, and I actually step between them. I think I feel like it might get violent. I step between him and the line producer, and he feels so bad, and he walks back on the mark where he had been giving that yeah. speech, and and we weren't filming, but he starts to do a like a a long apology that gives his whole history of how he grew up with, how you treat directors. Yeah. And we used to, Robert Mitchell used to hang the director off the balcony by his ankles. Right. And, and I, you know, I've been, I've been in so many, I've been injured so many times and I've flatlined, you know, from Percadine and oh, like, wow. I was like this whole, it was the most unbelievable. Tw- I think it was like 20 minutes long. It's like a Mia Copa? Oh, yeah. And what I didn't know is the video tap guy hit record on that. Yeah. <laughs> and somewhere uh, there's a tape of it. But um, Hank Azaria, to this day, can d- deliver that whole speech uh, because it was so unbelievable. It was one of those moments when you're on was a set. Was it good? Where and it was so good. And But so... So much about, uh, you know, uh, the, the sort of damage an actor has to go through, huh. you know, and the 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 complicated psychology of being such a huge star as Burt was. Yeah. And then um, having this chance at a huge comeback and then have it be so fragile, uh. you know, and uh, it was just it was just an incredible and he old kind school of knew moment. he blew it somehow. I, th- I think so. I, I you know, I, I, huh. that was us all... Trying to figure out what's going on, but uh, it was but it so, it was like such every, a heartbreaking it was just, it was moment. Sort of a breakdown. Yeah, but it was also we loved. Uh, yeah. I remember the the guy who was a hockey player, and the, I mean, a kid. And actor, he just said this to the whole set. To the whole set, and all of us. The, now he's had us all come yeah. out. You know, now it's a big deal, and he's actually now on that mark, lit just like he was when he was giving this other big speech. The locker room speech. <laughs> and it was just the most surreal and, and kind of amazing and moving moment. But it was an apology. But it was an apology. To yeah. the whole crew. To the, everybody, yeah. For, for making a scene, for, for losing his shit. For losing his shit in front of all, you know, in front of the whole crew. And I've, we all loved, the, 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 the tension was broken by some, uh, you know, the ho- ho- one of the kid hockey players, yeah. something like at the very end, he said something like that. I think you'll be all right, Bert, or something. And the pink place just went crazy. Just shit, I was laughing. It was really a wow. So that, moment. And, and that was the movie before Meet the Parents. So that was the movie before the oh, second they took Austin. It away from you. And then I, uh, while I was gone, I got a call saying, "Hey, it's from a guy at Spielberg's company," yeah. and said, "You know, we slipped that script that you told us about to Steven Spielberg." He's going to direct it now, yeah. and Jim Carrey is going to be in it, and um, which which meet the parents, you know, and I couldn't. Spielberg be, was going to direct suddenly it. Suddenly, Spielberg was going to direct it. Um, he had it for about two months, and then he he decided that, uh, you know, maybe he was didn't want to. He you know he'd done 1941. He was a little nervous about doing just a straight yeah. up comedy. <laughs> so um, still still so, uh, still a little tender about 1941. Yeah, yeah. I never quite get over that. So he uh, he kind <laughs> of so gave many it years back. later. I know, but it's he like said that's how he, ex- he explained it to me, and that, because <laughs> he stayed involved even just for saying he was going to direct it for a little. Yeah. When I got when I did get back on it, Jim, Jim Carrey actually yeah. through Jimmy Miller, who I think you know, yeah. was Jim's. Jimmy's manager. Uh, Jim's manager and yeah. my manager too, and so Jimmy's your guy. Yeah, Jimmy's oh, my manager. I didn't know that. Yeah, for a long time, and uh, since then, actually, since before, since the first Austin, 
and he uh, he, uh, he the, having he, because he could put me with Jim Carrey, then I got to get back on it, and then Jim Carrey fell off, and I always wanted Ben Stiller, so we got Ben, and and then your your acting buddy De Niro, oh yeah, <laughs> came on, and then it, that made it go, and that was uh, that was my second you know a series of comedies was the, the Meet the Parents. Who played thing. his wife, Gwyneth's mom? Uh, Blythe Danner. Yeah, Blythe Danner. Amazing Blythe Danner. Yeah, 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 and uh, and then the. It wasn't until the second movie where he got Hoffman and Streisand. Streisand. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. You got a big cast with your movies. That one nearly killed me because they they set the release date before we had a locked script. For the Meet the Fockers? For Meet the Fockers. And they, the money on that, the budget on that was so big. And Just they, for paying those actors. Just paying all those actors who all, of course, deserved to pay. The first one did really well. And the second one, you it know. It did? The first one did well. And so they... And and once we had the idea that we could get Dustin and Barbara as a as a counter to to as De Niro, a couple, it's so crazy. Yeah, we um, then we knew we could get going, but it, we started it without a third act. We started it with seventy pages, and uh-huh. I, I had to walk on the set every day, saying, "Don't worry, Academy Award winners, <laughs> you know, of <laughs> of various, yeah, you know, I I I'll, we'll figure it out." But I had I did not think we were going to figure it out um and uh, we just kept shooting and finally did figure it out who hires randy newman for those things i did i i uh i think he just <clears throat> did the music for noah bomb he day. did he did and it's extraordinary i have and to watch that movie he it i heard Randy's someone say crazy. that music elevated that movie and it really and it does i mean I, I like the story anyway but it the music really is a big part of it if you watch meet the parents and you see how uh great that the kind of um, just normal, almost sitcom plot, and really good acting. And Meet the Parents, I'm really proud of the the acting and the yeah. story. But it's you know it has a it works at a level. And then add Randy Newman's uh, these beautiful choral arrangements and the, this kind of whenever Ben Stiller screws up, these I always used to say the angels would sing because he's he's so doomed. He's like completely. Uh, engineering his own, you know, humiliation, and that's when the that's when this great Randy Newman music would kick in and suddenly make now, it seem. Uh, now, you when know. you when you work with him, do you give Randy notes, or you just let him have a pass on his own? How does that work? So Randy works a really specific way. He um, he he. I first he just came and watched the film and was laughing really hard. I, that was the, I didn't think he. I was like, really? He he might actually do this, and uh, he liked it. And then he yeah, he just said when you finished let me know and he didn't a lot of composers now will be working with you along the way and mocking things up i just delivered the film he uh, we talked a little bit of, we did a spotting session we we did a lot of temps we we actually do a pretty great soundtrack with other people's music uh-huh and he said a lot of composers don't like that because then it seems to steer them. Feel, right. They feel steered and by the that we're trying to impose yeah. a vibe. And some composers are asked to knock off whatever you've used in the temps. And he actually said, no, I, I, I'd like to hear it. And then he heard all the music we'd put in. Some of it was Tommy Newman stuff. Some of it was, you know, his other. Compo- no, his, uh, I think he's his cousin tommy newman i can't remember the direct he's a composer, there's a whole right? family of the I newmans know, are yeah. all, all yeah. and david newman and alfred and newman and yeah it was alfred yeah. or the uncle I, I i actually lost track of their family tree but the fact that his father was a tough guy is what he loved about this movie was the de niro <laughs> you know hard-ass thing that uh-huh. didn't that stiller has to and and also stiller you know typically uh, i mean him playing himself as a as a kind of bullshit artist and a guy who's trying to you yeah. know just wiggle way through and right. when he's with this girl's out of his league and blah 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 but he 
Randy took it really seriously and and you just give it to you just give him the film he saw the temp he says I love it I'm not going to do anything like that and which is awesome like the music like you the had, music we had yeah. and he took it away and he just sits at a piano he called me one day uh, I'll never forget he called and started playing this this melody for the song that became the the fool in love which actually got nominated for an academy award yeah and he's just playing it on the phone I'm like Sue listen this is Randy Newman's playing this song on the phone to me right now and uh, in the end credits, Susanna, my wife, and yeah. Randy sing a duet in French of oh, the song. Wow. Uh, and they ended up doing it together on the Academy Awards as well. Oh, that's sweet. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, but he elevated it in every way, and the movie just seemed smarter because for that Randy. music. Yeah. He's the best. I love oh, that guy. He's the best. I, I, I got to watch I want to do a musical with him. I pitched him a musical recently, a political, a big political musical, and I haven't gotten back to well, his last record was kind of a political musical. All, you know, all his, yeah, the Putin song. Sure. And, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, great, those, that, what's the other record he did that had a great nations of Europe? Yeah, no, I love him. I, I got to watch this new uh, Noah movie. I haven't watched it yet. It's I've good. Kind of <laughs> it's really good. There's a lot of good up. films out now. It's, uh, it's crazy, yeah. So, like, you do, like, Dinner with Schmucks, a... I don't remember. I don't think I saw it. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that was another one of those films that not a lot of people saw, so you wouldn't be alone. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure either. It, it was a great cast, uh, Steve Carell and Paul Rudd, and Zach Galifianakis was... was really funny, and it, it tested... It tested as well as Meet the Parents. It was like so we were like it's a great example a of falling thing. for the testing. The title is what killed us in the reviews, and uh, it was a remake of a French film, a beloved French film called uh, Le Dernier de Con or something. I think is the title, mm. a Weber film, and yeah. people we got people the critics really hated that we were remaking this French film. And then oh really? So yeah. in between though, you 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 started the. Um... Started the political things, yeah, recount, right? And, um, that was a big show. That was game a big, change. Those big were big. Piece. They were big for me. Um, Sidney Pollack brought me in to do um, recount because he got sick, and uh, that's that he got was, the cancer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, did you, did you get to spend time with him? I did, and he. I'd known him before. He'd kind of been a mentor figure for me, uh, and yeah. we talked about serious films, but I hadn't done any serious How, films. And so what once you... again, he said, "Just come in," and he. Um, He's a guy that I admired for just serve the story. Don't, you know, don't feel driven to, and you see this in all, he had such a wide variety of films. You don't have to impose some signature style. Just, you know, I just admired that he, his style fit the story. And, and he also loved actors so much as an actor himself. I love, I love him as an actor. Yeah, he's great, you know, and, uh. So and Tootsie, I mean, there's just that's a fantastic performance. He was your buddy, and he he was a buddy, and just uh, he liked he the got, comedies. He, but he said, you know, you you, I was ta- I always talked about politics with him, and he was going to do that film, and a guy named Danny Strong wrote it, and they started working on recount? it. Recount, yeah, uh huh. And he got sick, and um, he just all he had done in prep was uh, cast Kevin Spacey, and uh, you know, picked a that's a big show. Was that HBO? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a big. Big and, thing, and I, I just, I, I, he told me, listen, I've got some weird news. I'm fighting this disease, and I think I can beat it, but I need you to take it over. And I was like, no kidding. All right, so I, um, I did, and he, he died <sighs> the day after it opened uh, on HBO. The day after it came out on HBO, um, but he, ha- he watched cuts and gave me some interesting, you know, feedback all along the way. He was amazing. He's, uh, yeah. And then, but you also did a political comedy around the same time. I did the campaign. 
uh, a couple years after Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I think I remember seeing that. Yeah. And it was goofy. It was goofy. Fun, yeah. Goofy, but, you know, uh, it was Will. It was just great Will stuff and yeah. Will Ferrell. So, and Zach was really funny, too. So um, well, Those are funny people. And then and then you did Game Change. Yeah, and bo- the and Sarah Palin movie, yeah. Yeah, I'm, and she's Julianne Moore. Come on, man. I know, I know. It's a great movie. And and one, both the Game Change and Recount won a, a bunch of Emmys. Yeah, yeah. So they're well-received. So now you're sort of in. That's your wheelhouse. And then you do Trumbo. Now, what happened with Trumbo? Another film that did, a lot of people didn't see, but it was a great experience. Um, but did you with like, Brian. Yeah, with Cranston. And, but yeah. did you, how did you feel about the final cut? I was okay with it, you know. I, I, uh, it was, it was, it was. There was no. It was the film we were trying to make. It was. Yeah. There was two scenes that I all have to this day tortured myself. One that I left in, and one that I took out. Uh-huh. But I don't know if they would have made a huge difference. One I took out was this great scene with Hedda Hopper, um, uh, where she sees a soldier, uh, you know, um, where you know, with um, a one-armed guy, uh-huh. and. and uh, um, you start to understand why she was such a right wing nut, you right. know, because she was so military, you know, soldier driven. And then uh, the other one was one with with Trumbo uh, teaching his daughter about communism, which I left in. I cut out the <laughs> the one armed soldier one, and I left in the. Then uh, I think now in retrospect, I might have flipped those. Like it was two scenes that just dog you for you know for a long time. When and how you, many people did you talk to that knew Trumbo? I, his daughters were yeah. the were the the main people I talked to. The, there wasn't really anybody else. And just still as around. you, didn't, I mean, as as just a director, you know, what are you looking for when you when you ask? Because like, I mean, it's on the page, right? You had this. Yeah, I was the script is there, but uh, for example, they told us a story. John McNamara wrote it. They told uh, John and I the story about once. Trumbo started writing under other names. He had a pretty organized racket where he would uh, uh, go and pitch his his take on a story to get work, sometimes original, but sometimes he would pitch to, to be a script doctor, but he couldn't be working because he was blacklisted. Yeah. And so he, he would... Uh, he would you know, use somebody else's name and and wrote Roman Holiday and The Brave One, but huge, big, yeah. award-winning films. And then he would also, to help his other writer friends, offer to rewrite anything they screwed up. You know, if he would get, he would say, you pay this guy just something to get him by, and it, and I guarantee the, the results will be good. It may not be a tr- as good as something I would write, because he was the most highly paid screenwriter of his time. He said, but I'll... I promise you I'll vouch for them and I'll back them up and rewrite it for you if they don't come through. Yeah. So he had his daughters handling that whole... Mar- he became a market for a kind of... A, I don't know what you'd call it, like a, a go-between from between the blacklisted writers and all oh, the studios. Yeah. The daughters told us all about that. And it wow. wasn't in the script. And it was really high pressure and high stakes. And there was always... Huh. They, he had supposedly like six different phones and the daughters would pick them up under different names. <laughs> wow, it's crazy. And uh, the details of that, that's the kind of stuff you... I always push... The writers are always a little afraid to go and speak to the real people because it blows whatever concept or structure they. Oh yeah, and then they, and but then also, you know, then you, then they're going to be bothering you. Yeah, and they're going to be. You have to get approval if yeah. you, you know, and 
But I, it's always been worth it. Uh, it just, you know, just on this film, we just did Bombshell uh, to talk to the women at Fox. You know, we we were. It would never have been as good as as we it turned out. Well, whatever you think of it, you know. And also, would, all of them talked. So they, they talked to us when they weren't supposed to you know but they that was what the movie was about that's what the movie's about yeah i thought it was great i thought oh, in, 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 and it had good pace to it and i and i didn't know the whole story mm-hmm. and it's got powerhouse actors in it yeah they're, they're so like how did that story come together for you how were you attached from the beginning to this the, the it's basically the fall of roger ailes and the you know yep. but uh unfortunately it didn't shut the studio fox <laughs> yeah. the network down did, but yeah. But it was a big shift in culture over there. It was a there. big shift. Um, it was, uh, you know, it's, it takes place in a year uh, from 2015, summer 2015 to summer 2016. It starts with Megyn Kelly taking on Trump in the primary. Recent history. Yeah, real yeah. recent. And uh, uh, pointing out all the horrible things he said about women. And it goes through to when Gretchen Carlson, who's been recording all this abuse for that whole year, ends up getting fired and then sues him. And then it's a Megyn... Gretchen overlap because it's not until Megyn Kelly steps up that they're able to to take down Roger and talk the Murdochs into into firing him. But along the way, there's a lot of very interesting twists and turns. And yeah. what I what I what I liked about it was just that you you don't you think you might know something about what the people at Fox are like, what those women might be like, and what everything we found out was like. Oh, there's so much more to what get got presented in the press and what how they portray themselves and part of it came from interviewing a lot of real people to try to get the essence of what went down and um we Charles Randolph wrote it he wrote the big short you know and it came to me through Charlize she had been offered it and wasn't yeah. sure she was going to do it much like the Mike Myers thing she just sent it to me I gave her some notes how'd you know her I knew her from working with her on a TV um pilot idea that a, a guy had brought her and she wanted help with it and it was a com- comedic mixed tone sort of thing and we've been trying to get that off the ground and we hadn't but we enjoyed the process and yeah. so she just sent it as a friend and uh, I gave her notes and then she's I don't think she was thinking about hiring me to direct so <laughs> until she's, she actually she's gave a producer her the notes. on it she's a producer and it was yeah. the you know the, the, the real active producer on it like she was we fell apart. She acted the shit out of Megyn Kelly. Oh, she's she's an amazing actor, and she transforms herself entirely, both physically with a lot of makeup, prosthetic stuff going on, but her accent, her yeah, the attitude. You know, she really went for it. But she was she uh, she was also just an incredibly good producing partner on it as well. So she brought it to you, and yeah. you don't think she had the intention of you directing? Not until she read these notes. I did another, you know, like. Oh, well, what was uh, sort of what was the thrust of it? Uh, the like, main was, note was she was not sure she should do it. Uh, you know, she, she just wasn't sure that she could connect with Megyn Kelly, and uh-huh. I said, "Here's why I think you sh- should try because it's a way of." talking about this issue of sexual harassment to people who are Fox News watchers who may not think of themselves as feminists or or may even resent being asked to think about this sort of progressive idea of idea of women standing up to power, you know, speaking yeah. truth to power. And I said, that might be a way to, I don't know, just connect this conversation across a, a much wider audience than people might have expected was possible. And maybe that's a way to uh, be a force for change, you know, right. in some weird way, or at least be a, a bigger conversation. Right. And um, so that's how I pitched it to her. And 
she said, that's, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, would you direct it? I honestly, I was totally stunned. I thought she might see me as a comedy person, but yeah. I never thought she had seen me as a someone who could direct her in a drama. And, but also, uh, you know, I think this was, you know, doing the political stuff you did to balance the sort of politics. This is really a, about politics within a corporate structure. In a it way. is, but it's, but it, it is trying actually to be about. It's from the women's point of view, sure. and it's actually about what is it, what's it like to be harassed by in a corporate culture that sort of seems to be part of it. But there, but it turns out, and this happened a year before the Harvey Weinstein news broke. This yeah. whole story, and, and Ailes had been doing it for decades and decades. But it turns out, obviously, that pattern is not just a right wing or a left wing thing. There's, right, was, there's it's a man there's thing. abuse. It's a man thing, and yeah. that's that's cross political thing, and. We tried to emphasize that, but all that said, there is a singularity with Trump uh-huh. and his misogynistic bullshit, you know, and and Roger Ailes's and, Ro- and the fact that Roger's promoting Trump that whole time, the shamelessness of it, and and, and the, uh, the ego, the egocentric, yeah. power addicted yeah. entitlement to it, right. uh, you know, entitlement yes. to. Yeah. Loyalty, and even in the film, we say in his mind sometimes loyalty meant sexual favors, you know. But it's also entitled to bully people or uh, just be, you know, a sort of vaguely culty kind of person who wants to impose their worldview on and make you have to reflect back and that worldview. And they're fucking worldview. liars. And they're such fucking liars. And and what they'll do to protect their lies, you know, is destroy so much. And some of that is some of that is used to trash the women who in this story this is what happens as soon as someone speaks up they there's a smear campaign yeah, you know, that's, that, yeah there's to, that to, and then there's just this yeah. this commitment like those scenes where he's with his wife and the stuff's coming at him yeah. and she's going to side with him that codependency that yeah. turn a blind eye or the the sort of like not knowing but knowing business you, you know, and and then just the, the defending the lie yeah. to the point of ruining people is yeah. is really kind of a uh, it's it's malignant it's, and horrible, but it's it's so human. Yeah, that's the fucked up thing about it. And I think that you know Lithgow plays him with a certain amount of vulnerability. I'm just going to say the way John goes at it uh, to not just vulnerability, but also even sense of humor. He was yeah. a very charismatic guy. He could even be a sort of father figure to a lot of these people. No, Megan Kelly. Was harassed ten, ten years before our story, and she keeps working and keeps getting promoted that whole time. Once she she kind of gets out of his eye line and just stays away from him, and then he stops harassing her, and she stays and you know becomes a star under his guidance. But meanwhile, he's harassing other women, you know. Right, and, but there was like that weird, interesting little part of the script where you get a quick sort of summation of his backstory and why he, yeah. you know, it did kind of give him a human foundation you know as yeah. much of a monster as he was and as much you know that you wanted him to, to to get what he got yeah yeah there was an element of sort of like well he's a damaged fucking person well and that's that's what we hoped would happen is that you would see that he's an actually much better villain because but, yeah. he's so human and because that's what we're all yeah, surrounded by these guys you look at how many of these people rise to power and control a lot of our lives you know and politics or uh-huh. anything uh-huh. because they're so egocentric that they become super charismatic and fearless like kind of entitled shameless. so much shameless them that we yeah. are, we as a species i guess are attracted to these alpha male kind of things and i really think it is some of it is 
a male issue, you know, not that, that there are certainly women who mm-hmm. have some of the get to some of those places and, and are abusive potentially, but it's pretty rare compared to the number of men who are. Yeah. And, and how much that overlaps then with the politics. And the scene with Margot uh, Robbie and like all of it was really good. Now, was the Margot Robbie character a real person? No, she's a, a composite representing a lot of the women who had spoken to Paul Weiss or story had told right. women their stories, but had not come out they're in public anonymous. and they're anonymous and the only way to tell their stories was using a composite right well i mean i i thought it was very compelling and and i and i love seeing the work and y- you. you know and and learning about the stuff and it was uh, i think it's good for men to see it you know i i actually talk about how some men come up and say i kind of thought i understood what this is and it's there's an empathy factor with well, we're lacking empathy because we don't live that life and i think that yeah. you know when you see a scene like I think the scene that with Margot and John, you know, where he's, you know, interviewing her. Yeah. And the way that unfolds where you see even the sort of just it, just the power dynamic, the yeah. abuse of the power dynamic can shatter a woman. Oh, and you can see that. it happen. Like I think that's the larger disconnect for men is that you know there you're the woman's in a situation, she's being asked to do something that may not be sexually, you know, contact or even, um, you know, it's it's devious. It's more of a power control thing. Right, that, but, yeah. but they don't know, you know, if you don't choose to not do it and you just sort of, I think the pace you gave that, the, the, the time you gave that to happen was great because you can see you know, her spirit get crushed. That's exactly right. By the she, compromise she decided to make because she didn't know how to say no and she felt that if she did, she would she would then, it would be detrimental to her career. And it's exactly what you we heard from women we talked to that he would push them a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more until they're over, they've crossed a line they never thought they would cross and then you see it in her face. Oh man, how did I, I was just kind of, he he, he yeah. would do this thing like make women they called it beware the spin he would make them stand right. up and give them a right. spin and he'd check yeah. out their wardrobe or whatever and she thought that's what it was about and then it slowly gets worse and worse until it's so far and then it's like oh my god I've gotten to this position and now he has a secret You know, he knows you'll keep because you won't she's not gonna she's not gonna want to talk about this now there's shame involved and he it's an incredibly weird creepy crafty manipulation to sort of groom someone into now being in his cult of and not so much uh, not that uncommon within the the range of toxic masculinity i feel like it's surprisingly common and it's you know our film is not gonna it's there's so much more to talk about in terms of how how widely um, problematic this really is. It's, sure. It's, it's, uh, it's the tip of the iceberg. You know, this, this is just one. This, and this is interesting because it was a, a year before, again, before Harvey Weinstein. These women came out. Gretchen Carlson is pretty amazing for coming out with no, no, with no expectation of a public support system. Like that, not that every woman's going to feel supported by the Me Too movement now, but back then no chance of that especially against such a powerful guy in yeah. fact the opposite the chance that everyone's just going to attack outlet, you yeah. yeah and a powerful smear campaign sure. hit squad that will come uh, out yeah you. still yeah 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 i mean i i was working on a bit about that that how there's a toxic masculinity spectrum that i think most men are on really uh, where like you know that at the at the far end of it is like just basic insensitivity and 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 lack of conscious 
respect, yeah. and that, and then the other side of it is murder. You know, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm right. It's not wrong. I mean, it, there's some. I've been reading a lot of literature in this in this field, and that's exactly right. That it's that it's that in sense of entitlement, there's nothing more dangerous than a a, a wounded ego of a person who felt they were entitled to the woman's attention and mm. men. In this case, just you know, he was punishing women in a pretty severe way, but a lot. And now there's like a generalized, much way. a yeah. generalized sense of that with a certain contingency. Yeah, yeah, I think so. With the NCEL community or, or, or these younger yeah. people that you know, sort of, uh, kind of communally Absolutely. feel rejected by women and 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 use that to power their hatred. That is spot on. Uh, and and listen, we're we're men. We we I it's I always feel like I'm I'm. I'm glad I'm talking about it, and it definitely has changed me going at it. But women know this stuff, you know, and we're we. I'm, I'm, I think uh, women that talk to us about our film are glad we're making it. But it's also like I'm always nervous about trying to explain any of that. I'm, I can sort of uh, talk about my own position uh, yeah. about this stuff. Well, I was my, a huge asshole. I don't think you were. I know. I I was. I, I definitely was not <laughs> sensitive enough to what women. Yeah deal with yeah. and and uh you know i was i definitely remember as a young person just i don't know just not just not getting what how how what we do how we behave uh it's empathy, towards, towards em- women it's an empathy deficit yeah yeah i think that's and and particularly once it goes up the spectrum towards more narcissistic behavior which mm-hmm. is almost by definition uh less and empathetic so, yeah. you know conscience yeah at yeah. deficit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a big shift from the empathy deficit to the conscience. <laughs> to, to pure evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah right. exactly. But that's the narcissistic trip into the psychotic trip. Yeah, man. So why why do you, what is it? Because like you're making a lot of political films now mm-hmm. and, and, and they're, they, they are dealing with, well, there's, there's tribalism, but there's also like, here's what fascinates me is that how can they be so detached from the actual like the the uh, the idea of democracy and tolerance and equality and all that stuff. And now it's just about like winning, and it's about like it's not about like I, it's sort of like do they know what most people want? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I think I think there there is an addiction to power. There's an addiction to being relevant. There's an addiction to feeling like you have your hands on the levers of things uh-huh. and. I think it's I think that there starts to be this rationale that okay we're we may not be serving some some liberal not the, the not necessarily specifically lefty liberal but the idea of liberal democracy but we'll get there we'll get back there once we re, we can once we win the the power to make the world we want it to make it will be an American democratic founding fathers. This thing. is the, the right. This is thinking their, the this. right thinking yeah. that it's a it's a means. You know the end justifying the means, but in the meantime, they're they've gotten so good at stoking fear and playing off of fear and 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 demonizing people on the left that to him that to them it seems like an existential battle for. How then shall we move forward? You know, what's who's going to be in charge of how it all goes, and and uh, let's not let those socialist, communist, uh, you lefties. know, subhuman lefties. So, in when we were doing recount, we interviewed a lot of the real people who were involved in that story, and one of them is this guy Brad Blakeman, who 
had taken credit for engineering the Brooks Brothers riot, which was, that was the nickname for what they pretended was a grassroots thing where local Floridians were banging on the glass while they were hand counting the votes to decide if, you know, in, in Miami-Dade, to decide who, who you know, whether, whether the election had been fair or not. It shut down the vote. The vote never got to happen because these the, the local election people decided that it was unsafe all of a sudden. And the guy who took credit for it, you know, was was this guy, Brad Blakeman, but the guy who wanted credit for it was Roger Stone. In the movie, we have uh, Tom Wilkinson playing James Baker walk into the room when he's first sent down there saying, get me Roger Stone, who was already a famous dark arts dude oh, since Nixon. He was part of the creep world, you yeah. know, all those guys. And when we talked to Roger later, and, and we interviewed both, uh, I got to talk to Roger uh, Stone uh, a couple of years ago, but but when we interviewed Blakeman, he said, we said, why do you want credit for this? This, this is like actual uh, unconstitutional behavior. These people are trying to get to the essence of, of, of making this election feel like it has integrity. You're trying to diminish that. What's What's the upside of that? And he said, dude, we won. We, we like winning. And if we don't lie, cheat, and steal before the left does, because that's all the left does is lie, cheat, and steal, we'll lose. So they believe that. So they believe that. They believe they've taught themselves that they've demonized, you know, in their minds that this, uh, this vast left-wing conspiracy to subvert what they think is, is American, uh, at least in these dark arts dudes' yeah. minds. And I think it's now, these used to be the fringe guys. Roger Stone used to be seen as a fringe guy. Yeah. But now a lot of them had, you sure. know, have risen. They're, you With know, the Roger. advent of internet communities, <laughs> you know, the fringe is now the mainstream. And the fringe is the mainstream. And Donald Trump was uh, in the, and do you remember when, when I was growing up, there were the John Birchers, you know, who were always sure. seen as the crazy people. Well, that's, Donald Trump now makes that sort of yeah, the, yeah, the John Birchers and the Larouches. Yeah, exactly. And now that now they're now they have the it's like it's like uh, Clockwork Orange going back and finding out. Oh, now they're the policemen. Well, it's like it's dismantling the the they they're sort of um, dismantling any real barometer of truth or fact. You know, through sort of uh, the persistence of of conspiratorial thinking, and then kind of throwing in, throwing into question any sort of documentation of anything. And because the internet moves so quickly and because so many people only take in you know, a fraction of the facts, yep. it's enough to mobilize brains. People are, are volunteering for a pretty good brain fucking that they're not gonna <laughs> recover from. All you need to spread is a little doubt, a little confusion, and a little fear as a propagandist. That's if you really want to delegitimize anything, and it's it's so easy to do that. What's hard? Uh, there's a, actually even a quote in uh, in all the way the Brian Cranston thing from a from an old congressman, uh, the LBJ that, thing. Yeah, the LBJ thing that you it, directed you know, that right. Any jackass can kick a barn down, but it takes a carpenter to build one. You know, anybody can kick down the legitimacy of something. Yeah, but to to build it up takes years of. You know, statecraft and diplomacy and and commitment to the ideals that all are held together with just you know bits of 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 faith in the system. They're not. They're often not stamped in stone anywhere. And once you start delegitimizing that, and it's pretty easy to do that. And that's I've been fascinated with the Roger Stones of the world, the sort of wandering, dark samurai killers of institutions is the way I look at it. Um, 
And it's, this is why I want to do Kent State, because Kent State was the, the result of just very negative, fear-based rhetoric to demonize kids who were not, they were called communists, local uh, outside agitators, uh, subhuman, you know, brown shirt. They would yeah. like use, you know, they would call these progressive people Nazis to dehumanize them. And they were local Ohio kids. They were, there were no, none of the people who were killed or wounded that day were anything other than just commuter kids from Ohio. They weren't, it wasn't Columbia or Berkeley. It was people that Nixon had called bums and the gov- local governor called, you know, uh, uh, you know, brown shirt communists, yeah. whatever, I mean, mixing, mixing all his metaphors. And so dehumanized those kids that the, these other kids thought, oh, I'm just going to aim and pull the trigger 67 times. It was, it's, the name of our thing is 67 shots in 13 seconds and killed four kids and shot, you know, a, a total of 13. So that, that's what, that's the ultimate conclusion of this kind of dehumanization is people start to look at other people as uh, worthy of destruction, you know, and that's, that's so I think, I, I think it's worth talking about all this stuff. So I appreciate you asking me. Yeah, man. And it, like that, so that seems to, that, that's the core of your, your, uh, I'm your interested curiosity. in propaganda. I think I'm really interested in how bad ideas spread. Like what? Well, yeah. I and mean, there's people just walking around shooting Jews. Uh, yeah, where did how, whose idea was that? Yeah, week. guess what? That's that's been a bad idea that's been spread for centuries. But the dehumanization is part of it, absolutely through rhetoric yeah. that enables you know the worst kind of fascism and genocide to happen. Absolutely, that's what I love about Jojo Rabbit. You know, I, I don't know why that film just got to me. That that's all about that. It's all about you know uh, the way. Um, and the way this little kid is taught to see Jews, yeah. he even keeps a, a book of all the dehumanizing right, right. terminology and stuff. Yeah, so uh, and it's just like in, in humans are so susceptible to it when somebody leads them that way. We're gullible when you again, if you play to our fears or our insecurities about the truth, you know, you can you can sow a lot of uh, a lot of dark. We'll keep we'll keep doing the good work, the big <laughs> work there, Jay. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Thank Thanks, you, man. man. Okay, folks, the movie is Bombshell. It was a nice conversation I had with that guy. He's a very decent man. No music. I'm on the road. And I'm uh, I'm just hanging out because I don't start shooting Respect until Wednesday. I was supposed to start on Monday, but I, I didn't. But the prop guy gave me a, a little Fender Strat to fuck around with in my, my hotel room, but I don't have it hooked up to an amp. But I think better, yeah, it's a moment of silence for all the sick and suffering cats everywhere. And a moment of appreciation to all the people that take care of those cats. And uh, and also a moment of reflection for people that have to, you know, follow through and um, do what's right to end a cat's suffering. And to people who lost cats, I say... La Fonda lives!